1: Faith here with your welcome toast. If you enjoy arguing about lunches at 6 a.m., I can't recommend parenting highly enough. It's great to have you joining the party on the Faith Middleton Food Schmooze, inviting you to eat, drink, and be merry with us. What a show we have for you as we drink in the summer's final quarter. American cocktails. We're filled with plenty of cocktail ideas, American style. How to understand the child picky eater and figure out if you have a child with a more complex issue. Is your child a compulsive eater or non-eater? Due to a form of anxiety. A child psychologist joins us with her book about it. Still plenty of time to make great stuff before summer's over. We'll brainstorm some delicious, fun ideas in this segment. Plus one more corn-centric dish, how to make spaghetti with corn carbonara. And we have a terrific wine discovery, a fantastic Chardonnay for $10 a bottle. We're in our studios at the Big G, Gateway Community College, downtown New Haven. We're steps from the New Haven Green, theaters, restaurants everywhere, New Haven Public Library, the Yale Art Gallery. At the Big G, our gang plays in five professional kitchens of the Culinary Education Program. We have Connecticut Public's busy news studios here and use of a television studio. My food buddies are here, senior contributors Chris Raspberry. Mark Raymond and senior producer Robin Doyen Aiken. Hey, everybody. Hey, hey babe. Babe. Okay. We say there is still a month of summer left. Oh, oh at least. Geez. Oh, come on. <laughs> yeah. We're it's never going to end this, this out year. as
2: long as we can. <laughs> yeah. Let's right go this into well. November this <laughs> we year. We do. <too. laughs>
1: we have to do something about the clocks and the, the length of the day and we'll all that. We'll figure yeah. it yeah. out. We'll figure it out. Okay. Just got to stop
3: it in the middle for a couple um, hours. That's all.
1: This is a time to cook the favorite things you've already oh. made this summer. And maybe yes. a few you haven't tried yet and you meant to. but most your favorites like i did mm. not make my blt potato salad which is lots and lots of crispy bacon all crumbled up red potatoes yeah. uh cherry tomatoes red onion
3: all still around the
1: mayonnaise oh, and then chopped man. up iceberg lettuce it is a blt in a bowl Still, it's I love it. Time. Okay. so still time to make that give me one thing all of you that you would repeat this summer that you made
3: Tomatoes, tomatoes, tomatoes. Okay. I take fresh corn. I cut it off the cob. I try to leave them into chunks where they're kind of connected. And I take it very carefully with a knife and I drop it on top of sliced tomatoes. And then I just drizzle that with olive oil and mozzarella cheese and a little bit of sea salt. Mm. And you can do that every day, lunch and dinner, breakfast, lunch and dinner. So
1: didn't you (laughs) tell me your parents... Have tomato sandwich yeah. for lunch and dinner.
3: Sandwich for lunch, salad for dinner, every single day. They grow enough tomatoes to supply themselves. How many and Probably 15, 20 plants. And they just constantly go out and pick tomatoes. There's always tomatoes on the counter ripening to eat today. And then they know which ones they're going to grab tomorrow off the plants.
1: Okay, Mark.
3: I just
2: can't stop making corn on the cob. I want to oh. go to the this this stand every day. Yeah. I want to get at least six ears of corn. Yep. I'm going to eat maybe two, three of them. And if the kids get one or two, they're lucky. And that's <laughs> yeah. just the way it's going to be because I love fresh I have, local I have corn. A
1: child psychologist coming <laughs> up for you they can help it. Yeah, it's like, it's Adult psychologist from work. <laughs> my, Robin, what have you got?
0: Well, I have an abundance of basil right
1: now happening at my house. So I'm all about the pesto and finding oh, yeah. different ways to get pesto. So tonight is pesto turkey burgers. Ground turkey meat, pesto, plus right a yeah, bunch of feta. What and, a great thing. Yeah. Yep. The kids like that. Delicious. They do. Before we do some stuff about tomatoes, Chris just made us this fabulous bunch of salads. We went plant-based today. So, Mark, spaghetti with a corn carbonara, which is a brilliant idea. We're going to get to that in a second. Can we do your wine first, though? I love this Chardonnay.
2: Isn't it delicious?
1: It has a little touch of oak. And maybe a whisper of butter. Not very much. Not crazy over the top with either one. Absolutely delicious. And to my astonishment, this is $10 a bottle.
2: $10 a bottle.
1: Carolina Chardonnay. It's a reserve.
2: Yeah, it's from Chile. One of the oldest families in Chile, Santa Carolina. All sourced from the Leda Valley. So this is a cold-climate Chardonnay. And uh, you get this beautiful richness and texture from it. There's a nice weight to it on the palate. But you get the apple. You get that little touch of butter and that little smokiness of the wood there. Just a touch. If someone said, I don't like big, oaky, buttery Chardonnays, Mm. this is not that.
1: Is it wholesomely made?
2: It is. And they're sustainable farming. It's a carbon-neutral winery. They're doing all the right things down there. And what I love is it's all estate grown. So they control the grapes from start to finish. They're not buying any of these it's
1: grapes from It's unreal that they're doing a wine of a quality like this for $10. Ah, you still get great values from South America. Hey, this is on our site. It's foodschmooze.org. You can see a picture of the label, Santa Carolina, as in Carolina. Carolina Chardonnay, and we tell you who the distributor is right on the site. Call ahead to your wine store. They can't carry everything, and they should have it to you within 24 hours. I'm having yes. a sip. And go ahead. And you know ahead.
3: what? I know this would go really good with oh. a corn pasta. Mm. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. right. Mm-hmm. And that's thinking, what sparked yeah. it. And I'm thinking, I'm thinking as I'm tasting it, I'm like, mm-hmm. wow, that's it. That's the corn pasta point. Let, we're
1: going to get to that right now. <laughs> but seriously, I wish I had known about this sooner. You know, it's probably just come out, but I would have had this all summer long. Imagine if it's $10 a bottle, just buy the bottle, and you got a case of this. This would be sensational with turkey. Fantastic house wine. Fabulous with lobster, and I love a wine that is not only good with food, but is good Just as by a itself, sipper. Yeah. Sitting around with friends, sitting, feeling the breezes yeah. of the, this summer still lingering. Oh, yeah. It's beautiful. Throw
3: an ice cube in it, sit on the porch.
1: Really great discovery. Thank you very much. Santa Carolina, Carolina Chardonnay at foodschmooze.org right now, and you'll see a picture of the label and what to say
3: at your wine store. Okay, now we have to do that carbonara sauce so we have something to eat with our Carolina <laughs> yes. wine. Yes. There you go. <laughs>
1: That's it. This is a corn carbonara,
3: people.
2: Are you ready for this? It's from the website thecoastaltable.com. I popped this one up this week, and I was like two Good of timing. my favorite <laughs> things in the whole carbonara. wide world. Local fresh corn and bacon. Are you kidding me? I know. It's amazing. But like that. It's such a great recipe. So let me tell you what's in it. Of course, fresh corn, so you maybe need a few extra ears extra no ears deal. for yourself, right? Um, spaghetti, <laughs> kosher salt, thick-cut bacon, unsalted butter, shallot, garlic, black pepper, and Parmesan cheese. Oh,
1: oh, how does this come together?
2: It's so, so simple. Take the fresh corn, cut it off the cob, as yeah. Chris has explained yeah. to us yeah. many times on the show, yeah. and you put it into a food processor. Pulse it just a couple times, just to get it good. Yeah, and some juicy. good liquid and juicy with that a little chunky juice. So yeah, in the recipe they tell you to put into a fine mesh and you know and squeeze it and just separate the juice from the kernels. Ah. But for me. I like that texture, oh, so I really? left uh-huh. the kernels in oh absolutely yeah. i here. don't want Whoa. i don't just want the broth I <laughs> oh, want the, uh-huh. I want the crunch right, oh, yeah. yes, exactly. take thick cut bacon, you cube it, cut it up into nice little pieces, yeah. put that into the skillet Start pan, rendering it down. you know, render it down, then separate obviously the yeah. grease, and yeah. put the bacon back in there, put your shallot and your garlic yeah. in there, yeah. saute that for a little while until everything's nice and yeah, translucent, yeah. and then. Throw your pasta in there. Yeah, cooked. And now here's where I, again, take another lesson from Chris Prosperi. I took those corn cobs and I put it into my pasta water as it was boiling to make it sort of a Uh corn stock in there. Quick one. And then before I throw my pasta in, I take the cobs out and it gets that good Uh milky flavor. Uh And then I throw my pasta in. And then as I'm straining the pasta, I put it right back into that pan, toss it all together, and then shave some... Parmesan Reggiano right put, over the idea. top.
1: The pasta is infused with the corn water. Oh, with the water. corn broth. Yeah. yeah. Did you put any of that broth in the pan to kind just of just maybe it up a, a, a little? tablespoon
2: or two? Because you get so much of that corn oh, juice, especially from, this time from the cob. Yeah. You know, it's this, fresh uh, corn. Wonderful thing. And it was so delicious. It's so oh. It's sweet corn. With that beautiful touch of crispy bacon and then There's finishing no it off with cheese. There's need no it. cream in There's no cream. You don't need
3: it. No. It's all from the corn. The corn has enough creaminess. Yeah. You this time of year. When the corn is fresh like this. It's a home run it's, recipe. You just don't need it's it. It's so good. Yeah. You just put I it in just pasta love
1: like that. the idea of this. This yeah. is yeah. so smart.
2: There's no egg in it. It's yep. just the healthier. corn. It's a healthier the version bacon. Of the, carbonara, the shallot. <laughs> and
1: a little touch
3: of garlic. It's so delicious.
1: <laughs> it's amazing. I'd like to do a book. On what the foodschmooz has declared healthy, <laughs> little bacon
3: never hurt anybody. Bacon. <laughs> no, I mean over
1: time, over years, I would really like to see that list. Mark, oh. that is a great discovery, yeah. and I have to say, with that one, with this that Chardonnay, Chardonnay oh. would be killer because of that whisper of butter yeah. in here, mm-hmm. and yet there's a little. Acidic quality to this Chardonnay where it would go against the buttery stuff in the corn, in the carbonara. It would be and so fantastic against the salty bacon.
2: I'm promising you it's a great pairing.
1: I'm promising you that you're going to make this for me. (laughs) 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 Will do. Will do. Robin, how about the kids? Would they like this? I was thinking more along the lines of date night dinner for corn lovers. I mean, oh, yeah. this is happening mm. at my house. That's a good idea. Mm. Oh, yeah. Mm. Yep. Yeah, but the kids would eat it too, definitely, because corn is a sweet vegetable. So, yeah. And it's also not green. It's got a lot of things going for it. Yeah. And remember that 11-minute... Uh, Rose oh, that yeah. That we had on the show, and Amy Bloom was on, and she said, you know, breezes on the porch, and it makes you want to take your clothes off. Oh, <laughs> yeah. This is also Any good corn. for date night. I can remember. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Lock their ears, the little ones, as they <laughs> listen to the show. Um, okay. So, Chris, you made a spectacular Tomato, tomato. tomato we tomatoes. had a whole vegetable... <laughs> luncheon today that was just terrific. It was really
3: awesome. I think I could be a vegetarian this time of year. Oh, absolutely. I mean, not all year, but this time of year when the vegetables are at their peak freshness, the corn, the tomatoes, the zucchini, the eggplant, everything, the peppers, everything. Let me say,
1: if you never go to a farmer's market because you're too busy or it's not your thing – We go when we can, and we find, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, as often as we can because it's so fresh. You know, all that stuff hasn't been transported. Mm -hmm. Now it is booming at farmer's markets. If you've got one on your town green or in your city, please go now because it is big-time harvest, and everything is so fresh, and they are so friendly. So if you pick up a kohlrabi and you say, what am I to do with this thing – they will tell you what to do, and it is fantastic, so, so helpful still time to get all that corn and by the way. Buy an extra dozen. Cut the corn off the cob. Throw it into a container. In the freezer it goes. And at Thanksgiving, you've got fresh corn. You
3: don't even have to cook it. Just throw it in right off the cob. Put it in your stuffing anywhere. Or, you know what? I was just thinking, too. If you don't have time to hit a farmer's market and you're driving home from work, and I know everyone does this, and you pass a little farm stand, even if it's like a little truck on the side of the road that has some tomatoes and corn, just take the five minutes and pull off. Absolutely. And pick some stuff up. Like you said, this is the time of year to do it.
1: One time I was in Waterbury, Connecticut, walking around in a neighborhood. And up and down the inner city street, every person had tomato plants in the small front yard and had prices on them.
0: (laughs) In Waterbury, I mean, big, it. big Italian uh-huh.
1: neighborhood. Yeah. Honestly, you could just pick from the little yeah. tiny, tiny front yard. And I thought, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen. Why would you want a lawn? Uh-huh.
3: This is what just we have to do. <laughs> exactly. Like-
1: so if you see that, do
3: that if you're in Waterbury. All right, so for tomatoes this time of year, I like to get at least five different kinds. So go to your farm stand or wherever you go, and the colors are just so beautiful. There's so many heirloom tomatoes around right now. There's hundreds of varieties, and not just the big ones. Get the cherry tomatoes, the little pear-shaped tomatoes, and the little currant-shaped tomatoes are the ones that are teeny, teeny. They have such bursts of flavor. Oh,
1: Yeah, we had one at an organic farm that we were driving by and they have everything. And it was, I think it called zebra, orange stripe,
3: unbelievable tomato, I thought. Just try them, you know. Where I get my tomatoes at Young's Farm, Mrs. Young will just cut a piece for you and taste too. That's the Why cool thing. where you get that mozzarella? And you can a, get this yeah, in that's a Connecticut treasure. It's called Sam Malucci and Sons. Malucci. Malucci, and it's a Connecticut thing. It's a like Hartford M-E-L-U-C- company. M E
1: L U. No, it's
3: M A U L U C C I. Nice Italian name. Malucci. Yeah, Sam Malucci and Sons, and it was actually just bought by Mozzaccati's Bakery. Um, because the patriarch of the family passed on, and uh, the okay, people, people at, don't don't change anything. Yeah, and then the people at the bakery <laughs> were like, "No, you can't," because that's what we put in our cannolis. Yeah. <laughs> because they make two things: they make ricotta, and they make mozzarella. Yeah, you go to the Italian market, or so you go to any good supermarket in Hartford. So you'll a big see it.
1: supermarket, yes. You
3: like I oh, said, yeah. not all of them have it, but some of them have yeah. the mozzarella. All of them have the ricotta because that you see everywhere. That's what they're most famous for. And some of them you'll see their little mozzarella balls that are wrapped in plastic.
1: You know, we have a fair heaven. number of local mozzarella makers yeah, in Connecticut. Do. Yeah, we
3: do. It's we interesting. Do. Yeah, and this one's old. This one goes back into the, I think, into the forties, thirties. It's or 40s a very creamy
1: texture. It's a
3: really creamy texture, and again, with the the. Acid and the sweetness from and you're the different tomatoes. All
1: they make is ricotta
3: and mozzarella. And mozzarella. That's, it. that's, that's all they've all ever their made. Attention. That's all they've ever made. They're most yeah. famous in the Hartford area, of course, for their ricotta. And and like I said, if you get at Mozzicotti's in Bloomfield, if you go there and you've had their cannolis, which they're famous for, they use that ricotta in and their cannolis. And if
1: you're in the New Haven Hamden area, you must go to Liuzzi's.
0: Oh yeah, L I U Z Z I. It's in Hamden. Uh-huh. It is
1: right off the highway, and they make their own cheese. Yeah. Beautiful. Beautiful, beautiful cheese. The best ricotta for homemade ravioli or for anything. It's just spectacular. You know
2: what I stopped there for? Their mortadella that's got a little bit of black truffle in it. Oh. Big balloon. balloon. And I get a pound of it, and then I bring it home, and my wife yells at me because I bought a whole pound. Yep, and it's bad for you. like, you
3: know. You're not supposed to be eating that much yeah. of that. I don't <laughs> care; it's delicious. That, that goes in our healthy food schmooze diet. You know, I would. You know what you need to do? You need to just cut it up into small pieces and put it on top of the tomato salad. That then it doesn't. It, then it's perfect. healthier because it's not a big right, a big yeah. slice, a big slice of it. It's you nice just little eat bits more of, it. of them.
1: What do you yeah, mean? You just it. eat a lot of the cubes? Like. A, how is that working? There's a
3: there is definitely a thing to my way of thinking here.
1: Okay, coming up, we have this book, Cocktails Across America. Those old linen postcards had ads on them with the cocktails and the names of these places. We have recipes on our site. And then later in the show, we have Dr. Joanna Robin, who's co-author. She's a clinical psychologist of a book about kids with OCD and how to tell when a picky eater is just a kid who's doing the normal thing according to his or her taste buds and when it's adventuring into more complex territory. It might remind you of you when you were a kid, so stay with us for that. I'm Faith Middleton, and you can sign up for our free podcast, copy of the show, that arrives in your inbox, and you can listen anytime you want. You can have a little library, archive of all the things that have been on the show. Just go to foodschmooze.org, sign up once, and then it comes to you. I'm with my treasured food buddies, Chris Brasberry, chef and co-owner of Metro Beast Restaurant in Simsbury, Connecticut. Uh, Mark Raymond, senior contributor He's one of our special wine guys, lives in Wethersfield, Connecticut. And we're turning now to this book. You can imagine that uh, I have shelves of cocktail books. I've read so many (laughs) of them. Some of them are collectible with wooden covers. They're just fabulous from the 30s, 40s, you know, that kind of thing. This is one of, if not the best cocktail book I have ever read. Um, You know, you hear about American studies as a department at universities, and you think, why didn't I take that? You know, it includes all kinds of things, history, culture— But politics puts them all together in a package and you understand the times we've all lived through in a holistic way. It's just a brilliant idea. In a way, this book is that. It's got recipes and it's got this sort of American studies approach because it's everything. It's visually fabulous. All these American – it's called The Cocktails Across America – a Postcard View of Cocktail Culture in the 30s, 40s, and 50s by Diane Lapis and Ann Peck Davis. Ann is our guest. Ann, welcome to the show, by the way.
0: Oh, thank you so much, Faith. I'm so happy to be invited. I want to first explain to people
1: why these postcards are important. These are the ones that looked like fabric from long ago. Sometimes you'll see them in an antique store. They're made of linen. And they absorb the ink, and they almost pop in the color, and they have this amazing look, right? We We love seeing
3: them in stores.
1: Yeah, so this book is filled with them from those decades.
0: The linen postcards were produced between 1931 and 1955, and as you said, they were characterized by textured card stock, saturated color, airbrushed pictures, and they gave a utopian ambiance. They were used to advertise hotels, restaurants, motels, bars, cocktail lounges, as well as destinations like the Grand Canyon, Parrot Jungle in Florida, and they were produced exclusively in America during this time period, and they depicted primarily American scenes.
1: Let me give you a prime example because it involves radio. Remember all these stories about people in the living room sitting around the radio listening to these oh, shows, sure. the shadow knows, <laughs> and, you know, and all this kind of stuff.
3: Fireside chat. And
1: I thought it was only because people were so enchanted by these shows and radio had come out and it was a whole – well, no, I'm reading your book and, and it explains that it was right after the Depression – Nobody had any money to do any kind of entertainment, and so radios at that time, you could buy on what was the first installment plan. Wow. So it was an incredible bargain financially, so it all came together that way. I mean, I I was just stunned by that. That's the first time I've ever heard that. That's why people gathered around the radio, because it was the entertainment, and it was cheap.
0: That's 100% true, Faith, and it was... Where there's a will, there's a way. The radio manufacturers wanted to sell their radios, and the people, you know, during the Great Depression, people could not easily go out for entertainment. They craved having a radio, and somebody came up with the bright idea that people could buy them on time so everybody could have a radio if you had nothing else, you would have mm-hmm. a radio in your home.
1: <laughs> I don't know when you are looking at these old postcards. Does anybody here ever remember seeing ones that are focused on, let's say, what we call now tiki culture? Oh, these sure. Polynesian oh, yeah. places. Yes. You know, it might be in Florida, it might be in New Orleans. Yeah. There are cards about that and these drink recipes in here.
0: The first person credited with creating this Polynesian exotic theme would be Don Beach. He was in California, and he opened up his place in the 1930s and found that he could buy rum cheaply and decorate his bar with all these exotic palms and shells to give the feeling that people coming into the bar were in a faraway exotic place.
1: I still try and find these. I would drive two hours to get to one of these. I once found one outside of Springfield, and I was just beside myself. You have to walk over a bridge (laughs) inside the (laughs) restaurant. You know, things were served in skulls. The drinks were terrific. I just love this stuff.
3: You know, these postcards remind me of – it's like the Instagram of its day, right? Oh, yeah. That was their method of getting the word out. And now we have things like Instagram. It's, it's fascinating.
1: Yeah. So we've got a recipe from the book. This is called Cocktails Across America. A Linen Postcard View of Cocktail Culture in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Our guest, co-author Ann Peck Davis. And so this really is an example of American culture, cocktail culture. We think that all of our cocktails come only from England, because uh, so much of the United States is from England, and that's not the case. These cocktails were made up and sometimes became famous because of these postcards. So at our site, we have not only information about the book, but the DuPont Hotel cocktail. One and a quarter ounces brandy, an ounce of dry sherry, a dash of Angostura bitters, an orange twist for garnish. Now where was this hotel?
0: The hotel still exists. It was built in 1913. It was conceived by Pierre S. DuPont, who is the president of his namesake company, the largest chemical company in the world at the time. Um, And he built the hotel with all the bells and whistles to be a very grand place in Wilmington, Delaware.
1: Here's the thing about this, because it was a DuPont, The Hotel DuPont's guest rooms had this nylon upholstery, the curtains and rugs all in nylon. They introduced this synthetic fiber to these crowds at the 3940 World's Fair in New York. They had live models, Miss Chemistry and Miss Nylon, which I just adore. And they wore and demonstrated nylon stockings as an alternative after the war to silk stockings. This is how all this stuff came to be. So we have that recipe on our website. Another one we have is the Sazerac. And you can guess where this is from. This is New Orleans, a mm-hmm. classic, a cocktail that I love. And it's sugar and Peychaud's bitters, Angostura bitters, rye whiskey, absinthe, and a twist of lemon. This was the Blue Room in New Orleans.
0: Yes, And Diane and I actually just attended the Tales of the Cocktail in New Orleans. Then we stayed at the Roosevelt Hotel, where that card is from. That was a real thrill for us. And there's also the Sazerac Bar there. The Sazerac actually went through a number of transitions. It was initially made with cognac, and over time, because it was hard to get the French cognac in New Orleans with the expense. And the importing of it, rye became the main ingredient. So there was a real Sazerac bar, and it was located in different places in New Orleans. But now the Sazerac bar is at the Roosevelt Hotel. Mm.
1: I love the section on the Miami Beach cocktail. I love that whole culture there. I just think it's so much fun. And there were all these hotels, the Delano, which has been preserved and updated and There's a Miami Beach cocktail is whiskey and vermouth and white grapefruit juice, which is interesting. Did these creators of these cocktails, were these true originals?
0: I can tell you a little bit about the Miami Beach cocktail because that one, some of our cocktails, we tried to include recipes that were specifically from this time period, but sometimes that was difficult. The Miami Beach cocktail is actually a prohibition cocktail and. And there's a whole story in there about how that came to be, but primarily it was because that was the ingredients that were available. So some bartender someplace in Miami Beach during Prohibition was able to obtain the vermouth and the scotch whiskey because it actually was from the U.K. and the alcohol was transported into the Bahamas because it was legal in other parts of the world. And transported onto American shores, it came onto into the South Florida region, and some bartender took the grapefruit juice, which was readily available and mixed it with the whiskey and the vermouth There you had it the Miami beach cocktail
1: Florida was one of the places to be during <laughs> prohibition if you were you know on the side of drinking mm. so um, these postcards are amazing to look at. And you do this region by region of the country. And in the Midwest, I would think there would not be too many, and yet there are. They had their own cocktail culture. It's a fascinating thing. And even at the back of the book, there are replicas of these linen postcards that you can just cut right out of the book and use and send to people if you want. There were restaurants that had special cocktails. And the whole table, you can still do this in... um, San Francisco, Chinatown, the whole table spun around and, and you grabbed things off the center raised island as it went around and then they would count your plates.
3: Like a Lazy Susan kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, and then yeah.
1: sometimes it's water. Food is goes by in a little boat because there's water in the middle of your table and it goes swimming by and you just take it out. <laughs> and there was a one – can you explain the one that was the merry-go-round? This one cracked me up.
0: The new technology of the time was that they were able to do these revolving kinds of machinery, and they incorporated that into a bar in what was called the merry-go-round bar, and it actually turned around. The bartender would be in the middle with the bottles, and the patrons would sit on this revolving machinery that went around the bar, and they would be served their drink, and it would slowly rotate, and they were located really all over the country.
1: Slightly nauseating to me, the, the idea of this. Just...
0: Actually, I can tell you I was just on one because there is one remaining at the Monteleone Hotel in New Orleans. It's the last one that we know of. Wow. And it goes so slowly that you can't even feel you're moving until you're ready mm-hmm. to leave the bar. And then you realize, oh, I'm in a different place than when I first sat down. <laughs> okay.
2: It's not the alcohol. <laughs>
0: Yes, not the alcohol. Uh, After prohibition, after repeal, they wanted to come up with all kinds of whimsical, fun ideas to welcome back imbibing in America. And the merry-go-round is an example of one of those entertainments that they uh came up
1: with. A fascinating story in that chapter in your book is about how the machinery to make things revolve included the way that stage productions in theater could use this stuff for the stages to move and revolve. And that was revolutionary. And you said in the book that they even had military people guarding the technology so that it wouldn't be stolen by whom? The The Soviets? I mean, who did they think would steal it? Just any other country in the world?
0: I think they were concerned about Germany, Russia. They were concerned about that. So They had actually, as legend has it, they had people stationed at Radio City Music Hall where they have all this technology and still use it today in their productions where things turn around, things go up and down on a hydraulic lift. So the story goes is that they had people stationed there to protect those capabilities.
1: Well, true or not, it's a great story. (laughs) <laughs> oh, yeah, it's great story. But, uh, filled, this book is filled with great, great stories like that one. And it is by Diane Lapis and our guest, the co-author, Anne Peck Davis. It's called Cocktails Across America, one of the most interesting cocktail books I've ever read. So this is going on my permanent shelf, Anne. Thank you so much for letting us uh, put some of these cocktails at foodschmooze.org. Thanks for being our guest.
0: It has been a pleasure to be on the show, and thank you so much for your kind words about our work.
1: And graphic design fans, this is a treat. Let me tell you, it's really a treasure. And in addition to a few of the recipes, we also have several postcards posted on foodschmooze.org. We love the local. Please support your local food growers and food makers. We'll be right back with a psychologist talking about kids who are picky eaters how on the one hand normal that can be and on the other hand when it should be of concern stay with us I'm Faith Middleton. This is the Food Schmooze Party offering the richness of life and coming to you in Connecticut, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, and New York. New York, including Westchester County, the east end of Long Island. That means the Hamptons, of course. The senior producer is Robin doyon Aiken. To hear the show on Connecticut Public Radio. It airs Thursdays at three and nine and Saturdays at noon. Podcasts, our curated recommendations, are always online at foodsmoose.org. I've been waiting for this on the show. I mean, I guess I've mentioned it several times. Be- Aww. No, so this this is Dr. Joanna Robin. She is co-author of a book called the OCD Workbook for Kids. We're going to get to all that in a second. But, Joanna, the last time I was at a party, Joanna was, I should say Dr. Robin, was at the party and served the most delicious and the simplest pasta on earth. Anyway, welcome to the Food Shmooch Party. Thank you. So happy to be here. Tell me about this basil pasta With pistachios that you threw together. She just made this up. I saw the fresh basil
4: growing, and it looked so beautiful, and I just love fresh herbs. And then I was eating pistachios, and I said, wait, I think this needs to go together, like a pesto. And then I just put some garlic and an onion, butter and oil, fresh pasta, and then wilted some basil and put some Parmesan cheese and served it. It was very Moroccan. (laughs) You see, Chris?
3: Yeah, that's very Moroccan. Brilliant. I don't think I've ever had it on a
1: pasta. It was so delicious. I was looking at the bowl because there were a number of people sitting at this round table outside, and I thought, is there any more? <laughs> and there, there, you know, there all wasn't. Gone. Everybody wolfed it down. So, again, to make the sauce, this is not all ground up like a pesto. So there were the whole way. pistachios in yeah. there. Yeah. So, also, Joanna, one more time and then I'm going to ask you a couple questions about kids who are picky eaters. And when that's just OK because that's kids – Or there's a symptom of something more concerning, like an OCD and how you tell the difference. I want to get to that. But again, to make the sauce for the pasta, what did you do? In what order?
4: I just sauteed up some fresh garlic and fresh red onions that were from a farm stand with some olive oil and butter. And then at the very end, I wilted the basil because I didn't want it to be overcooked and then threw that mixture over some fresh pasta, and then I threw in the salted pistachios. And then we put the Parmesan cheese, the final touch.
1: Um, You see how... I love it.
2: I wrote it down. I'm making it tonight.
1: Okay. (laughs) I'm going to get pistachios. Can I do one more thing? Because we were just getting ready, and Joanna said, oh, you know, I do make this one other thing. You make Spanakopita cupcakes... And the word cupcakes appeals to the kids, and so they eat it. What is this?
4: I love spanakopita, and I, for some reason, thought, what if I took out the phyllo dough? I don't know. I was trying to maybe go low-carb. And I put it into a cupcake dish, basically all the ingredients you would use for spanakopita.
1: Spinach and and feta. and Yeah, spinach,
4: feta, mozzarella cheese, breadcrumbs, sauteed onions, olive oil, and Parmesan cheese, and roasted it. And my kids actually eat it, um, <laughs> <because>
3: <laughs> and they hold together form. too, right? They must, yeah.
4: They do actually if you you know use enough cheese. <laughs> the,
3: the molded wow, that's yeah. genius. You
1: know this is how to turn spanakopita into a gluten free item. And plus, it's just fun to eat something that has that little bit of crustiness on the outside from the oh, cupcake. I love cheese mm-hmm. when and it crusts
3: like that. It's really good. I want to go to yeah. your next party. <laughs> I
1: know. So, so you don't even have to worry about the breadcrumbs because there are gluten-free breadcrumbs for people. So this is great. Okay. Now – Dr. Robin is co-author with Dr. Anthony Pugliafico of this book, The OCD Workbook for Kids. And when we were having this pasta with pistachio and basil together, the conversation started about this workbook. And I said, can you send that to me? Because it's called The OCD Workbook for Kids, meaning how to help children manage Obsessive thoughts and compulsive behaviors. And we got into a conversation about picky eaters. Ah. Now, almost all kids I know at some point are picky eaters. And I call it the white food period where they just want to have everything white. Kids have unusual taste buds. They're not fully matured. And so there really are things that kids don't like. And they shouldn't be forced to eat them from all the research I've read. When does that cross over into, how do you spot when it's uh, maybe a sign of something a little more obsessive-compulsive?
4: As you said, a lot of kids are picky eaters. They have certain ways they like to eat things. They're used to certain things. They like to be in control of what goes into their body. So that's really normal. And, you know, their taste buds haven't fully developed. So a lot of kids have those picky eating styles, and that's totally within the normal range of development. We get concerned when... Kids are limiting their food, less than 20 food groups, when their weight is affected by it and their pediatrician starts to get concerned that they're really not healthy enough, you're having some deficiencies in vitamins, and they're potentially not getting enough nutrients. And it can be connected to different types of problems. I see a lot of kids who it's related to anxiety, where they're nervous about trying new foods or make a lot of rules. We call them the OCD rules, where they make a lot of rules about what foods they will or will not eat. So not all kids who are, you know, more severely picky have OCD, but we do see kids with OCD have more of these rules. But in general, you don't, of course, either way, force kids to eat more foods. We don't want to get into that battle, but it doesn't mean we can just accommodate their picky eating. We don't want to reinforce that
1: either. Yeah. Dr. Anthony Pugliafico and Dr. Joanna Robin are both clinical psychologists He's director of the Columbia University Clinic for Anxiety and Related Disorders at Westchester. And Dr. Robin is director of the Westchester Anxiety Treatment Psychological Services. So they see kids and families who are going through this. So when kids say, I don't want to try something, on the one hand, that seems normal. It's a new experience, and every single thing kids do is new. I mean, they're so brave. Just being a child is so brave. So when is that of concern?
4: If it's starting to limit their food groups, and it's interfering with their life. So we'll see sometimes parents saying, you know, my kid will only eat three things, chicken nuggets, bagels, you know, and... You know, pasta or something, or pizza or something.
1: Yes, the white food period. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Mm
4: -hmm. And the pediatrician will say, oh, don't worry, they'll grow out of it, just let it be. And I think there's maybe a combination approach you can take. You don't want to get into a battle. You don't want to force food on a child. At the same time, you don't want to reinforce that. We'll talk to parents about this. And when they make dinner for the family, instead of making the child their own meal, try to incorporate a food that they will eat into that family meal. We don't want parents to reinforce this pickiness by making a whole other dish or I know at restaurants, some parents might bring the child's food with them. Again, that reinforces the idea that it's okay to be picky and you don't ever have to try anything new. And we also want to make sure they're not filling up on junky stuff during the day and juice so that they actually maybe hungry when we go out for a meal and maybe they might have more of a willingness to try something new. Huh.
1: What does it sound like if you're talking to your own children about trying something for the first time?
4: One of the most important things is to say about trying it. And when you present it, it's really important to not present a giant amount of it. (laughs) Present a very, very tiny piece, maybe less than a pea size of something. So it doesn't seem overwhelming to the child. It seems manageable and that you're going to be really proud of them if they can give it a try. So you're reinforcing the idea of bravery, of being willing to try new things, a willingness to feel uncomfortable. so we try to present it in a way that makes it more likely that they'll try it and that they'll feel good about themselves and that they'll know that we'll feel good about them.
3: Oh, yeah, I... we, we were told to take one bite.
4: Yes, exactly. That's all we had one to do. Bite. And I think we want to be careful, too. Like, you don't want to minimize it and say, oh, it's so easy, just, you know, one bite, not a big deal. For a picky eater, it's a really big deal. So I reinforce that. I say, you know, I know this is not easy for you. And I'm asking you to be brave and try a bite. And I know that I'll be proud of you if you give that one try, that one bite. So we don't want to minimize their anxiety about it, and we don't want to reinforce it, too.
1: Okay. So Interesting. um as a child, I remember I used to hide my carrots in the drawer. There was a drawer in our kitchen table, and I would just sweep the carrots into the drawer, and of course there came a day. <laughs> when my, somebody oh, opened the drawer to get something <laughs> Months and of carrots. there years i mean uh, really so Ooh, I, smell. I was in terrible trouble but i'll tell you if someone had said to me you have to sit there and eat the carrots on your plate i would have sat there till hell froze over because they tasted so terrible to me my taste buds The way you say it to kids is so terrific, and what you recommend is so terrific. When kids really just find the taste of something noxious, you know, what do you do?
4: The first thing you want to think about is something called chaining. So you want to think about a food that they already eat, and then pick a food similar to that. So maybe carrots was not the right choice for you, right? But maybe one time you had a bite of a pickle and you liked it. So maybe the first food we would put there would be a cucumber, that way, it's not such a big leap for the child. We're not going to pick broccoli in that situation. Yeah. You know, if you're barely eating any vegetables, we're not going to try one of the more difficult ones. So you want to think about the food you're suggesting um, and see if it's similar to another food they already eat. Well, How many kids have OCD? i am seeing more and more of it. But the statistics show is that it's, right now it's one out of 100 children have OCD. That's a lot. Um yeah, it is a lot.
1: And what is it? Is it just that our brains are just so varied?
4: It's unclear if it's that we're better at recognizing what OCD mm-hmm, is. Mm-hmm. Now that, we you know, it's more in popular culture a little bit, you know, I work with teenagers and they'll use the words like, I'm so OCD, you know, about <laughs> my locker being organized type of thing. So we're using the terminology more and people are more aware of what OCD is. And I work with kids and parents, and a lot of parents will say to me, wow, I had these same type of compulsions or rituals when I was a kid. I didn't know how to get through it. And now I feel lucky that my child, you know, is figuring out a way to deal with these type of things. So wow. it's unclear, like, is it happening more? Or are we just better educated?
1: Can you give me some examples of some behaviors where you would say, oh, I think you know, I don't want to pathologize people, you know, so we would say, oh, I think there's something obsessive compulsive going on here. And we can work with this and we can make you braver in the world. What are some of the behaviors?
4: Basically, it's called the doubting disorder. So it's all about doubt. And so the behaviors can look very different. But usually it's about the child doubts themselves in some way. A classic example would be, a child doubts that they got maybe all the germs off their hands, and so they go, let me just go wash one more time. And then they wash more time, and they say, Mm, I wonder if I got everything. What if I get someone sick, and then I'll feel terrible about getting them sick. Let me go wash again. And maybe the feeling goes away for a little bit, and they feel better, but then it comes right back again. Uh That is the cycle that we'll see. So where people might wash their hands one or two times, that's not really OCD. But if it becomes where it's like interfering with their life, it's over an hour a day, they can't leave the house or you know they can't Mm -hmm. touch their backpack because it might have germs on it, so therefore they can't do their homework because there might be germs there. And then maybe they can't get to school because there's kids at school who have germs. So it can sort of kind of expand. It starts one area
1: and keeps going. And you call these in this workbook sticky thoughts where this, we would say, you know, clinically obsessive. But I love this idea of sticky thoughts. Here comes that thought again. You know, it might be a child who is obsessed with or has a sticky thought about ridged pasta, versus you know smooth pasta the locking and unlocking of things what are some other ones quickly joanna it could
4: be this not right feeling of just oh no that doesn't feel right to have those two foods touch each other and i need it needs to be right it can have a sticky thought of it's just not right these sticky thoughts just feel very intrusive. They come into your mind, mm-hmm. and they're really hard to get rid of, and kids find them so uncomfortable that they try to do things to get rid of the thought. In our book, we call them OCD rules, like they'll to do something that OCD tells them to do to get rid of that sticky thought.
0: And it only makes
1: it worse, Isn't this, I, I think what you have done is a godsend, seriously. Yeah. It is amazing work, and I know you do it in Westchester at the clinic Thank you for sharing that. Oh, thank you. You know, the pasta recipe and thank the one you. with a spanakopita and a cupcake tin. And mm-hmm. this, this workbook. It's called The O C D Workbook for Kids by Drs Anthony Puliafico and Joanna Robin, our guest. And you can find this on Amazon, this soft cover book, the O C D Workbook for Kids. Thank you so much for being on the show and sharing that. Thank you for having me. All right, take care. And any more recipes, you contact us. I will. Okay, (laughs) thank you. We are on Connecticut Public Radio Thursdays at 3 and 9 and Saturdays at noon. Weekdays, listen for my 60-second food schmoozes and never eat more than you can lift. In New Haven, I'm Faith Middleton.